This is the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. And now your host, Avi Kravitz. This podcast is brought to you by De Beers Group Ignite, pioneering a new diamond world through groundbreaking innovation, science, and technology. Inspired by the world's unrelenting change, De Beers Ignite is driven to develop creative solutions for the diamond industry, not only for existing challenges, but also for those it may never have faced before, helping you to achieve growth with efficient and accurate technologies throughout the diamond pipeline. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. Um, my name is Avi Kravitz. I'm the Senior Analyst at Rappaport. And with me today is Joshua Friedman, our news editor. Welcome, Joshua. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Avi. Great to see you again. Back from your travels to, to Dubai, um, hanging out with the, uh, with the, with the uh, industry elite. How was your experience? Uh, it was good. It was, very, it was a very uh, productive and informative week. Yes. That's good. Did you get to have a bit of fun at least? Did you go to the World Expo? I did. I did. Um, I guess everyone's definition of fun is different. I would say actually the, the, the Diamond Conference itself was, was my favorite part. But uh, for those who enjoy listening to speeches and panels about the diamond industry. Well, I'm sure, um, I, I'm sure our friends at the, at the DMCC who organized the event will be happy to hear that, um, that there's someone out there who would rather have been in the conference than at the World Expo or seeing the sights and sounds of, <laughs> of Dubai. But um, so we'll, we'll hear a bit more about, the, about your experience in Dubai um, a bit later in the episode. You know, we were discussing earlier that so much has changed since our, our last recording in the in the world, in the diamond industry. It really is almost like day and night. And now we are in this, this um, the big question in the market is, is to what extent the uh, Russia's invasion of, uh, of Ukraine will have um, an impact on the diamond market. And I think the difference between now and our last podcast, um, I think our our discussion was was about a month ago, um, is that there's more there's uncertainty in the world, and um, and whereas in back uh, towards the beginning of February there was a, a fair a fair degree of confidence about where the direction that the the diamond industry was heading, um, now there's uncertainty. Um, would you would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it's. I'd say it reminds me of exactly two, almost exactly two years ago when the lockdown started in uh, in Europe and the US and the Middle East, and things were changing every day. Uh, and yes, there was a lot of uncertainty, and there were different messages coming from different sort of authorities in the industry and outside the industry. I would say maybe the level of panic is a bit lower than it was then, um, but um, you know, business can still continue. Just. Uh, as we'll probably get into very soon, a few restrictions. Well, well let, let's try and um, and break it down then um, for ourselves and for our, for our listeners, um, because initially the, the the sanctions that are are being placed on on Russia and there have been sanctions placed on Arosa as well. Russia's position in the in the diamond industry is that it's the biggest producer of rough diamonds and supply it to to um to the market and so the big question then is if um if that rough supply is going to be cut off you know it will obviously have an impact on the market but that hasn't happened yet right uh, or that hasn't happened yet and it's a question then if it will right so a week ago 
uh, most of the diamond, a lot of the diamond industry, as we said, was uh, was in Dubai at these various events. It was notable that uh, Sergey Ivanov, Sergey S. Ivanov, the uh, the CEO of Alrosa, did not at the last minute did not attend the conference, and instead gave a video message. He was supposed to be on a panel with the CEO of De Beers, which I guess should have warned us that something was up. And then just the day that I was flying back, the uh, the invasion began, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and on that same day, on the 24th of February, the U.S. announced a whole range of sanctions against a number of Russian entities, including Al Rosa and Ivanov himself. So they don't ban, I mean, there's been you know, statements put out by authorities like the JVC, the, Jew, the Jewelers Vigilance Committee on this, but the, the basic point is that they don't prevent American companies from doing business with Al Rosa. Um, however, they do restrict debt and equity transactions with Al Rosa. So uh, you're not allowed to engage in a debt transaction of more than 14 days with Alrosa, which according to our understanding means that you um, you wouldn't be able for, able, for example, to take goods on memo from, from Alrosa. That doesn't happen in rough, but if, let's say, you wanted, you were buying polish from their polish division, our understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, Abby, is that you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, to, to take goods on memo because that would be a debt transaction. Right. The bigger part of their business is the rough, uh, is the rough supply. And I guess the wider implication of the sanctions is on the banking system that Russian, um, Russian banks have been taken off the international SWIFT system or, or platform. And so it's very difficult. You can't make dollar transfers to um, El Rosa. And uh, we know that typically the, the rough market is, um, the diamond market is transacted in, in dollars. And so there was an El Rosa sale um, to its many customers um, during the week that the war began. And, um, and so our initial question was whether that, that sale completed um, and if, uh, if those companies would be able to get this, their goods um, out of um, El Rosa and if they had paid for those goods already. Um, and so it seems that that supply may be delayed slightly. In, and I'm not sure in terms of the payments, I think people from what we're hearing, most people were able to pay for the for those goods. Right. So, as you say, the the, the, the rough market is mostly transacted in, in dollars, but also in, the, the rough is generally bought and sold in cash. So the the sanction, the U.S. sanctions, from our understanding, don't directly affect rough purchases from Al Rosa. However, as you say, the the issue is the more indirect factor that the U.S., the U.K., the EU have um, excluded have together excluded several Russian banks from the SWIFT international payment system. So that means, as you say, that, that it's difficult. The, 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 their contract clients, Alrosa's contract clients, most of which are in Belgium and India, are not able to pay for goods in their usual way in dollars. So Alrosa had, had been sort of anticipating this for years and that they'd been uh, offering the option of um, buying in other currencies such as euros and my what i've been told is that this is this is something that they occasionally kind of put to put to the to clients right i i do remember that there was a, a previous occasion where they were or, or they had even put out a press release that they are giving option the option to pay in in euro 
Um, and then the other option is to for companies to pay in Russian ruble, which um, I understand that some Orosa clients um, that are, some non-Russian Orosa clients have bank accounts in Russia that they're able to make those payments in ruble. Right. Although the GJEPC, the the Indian Trade Organization for the Jewelry Industry, they actually have sort of necessarily advised against it, but they they actually said in a statement that the paying in ruble in in ruble, sorry, is is not a viable option due to volatility and illiquidity in the exchange market. So it seems that they're they're not so keen on this. Well, that if they're converting their local currency to ruble, it would affect value on of the of their goods. Yeah, right. So the, the truth is, on on the Indian side, I think there's actually a little a, a little bit of uncertainty about how it's working. I, I I don't I don't have all the facts about exactly how they're doing it, but I know that a lot of the Belgians are using an Italian bank to pay in euros. So the, the message I'm getting as as of today or as of yesterday when I lost you know, spoke to people was that business as usual and business is going on as usual and, and the panic seems to have diminished. Whereas a few days before there was some um, people a lot more concerned and the, G, the, the GJEPC were saying that there would be quite significant delays in delivery of, of rough. That said, I did you know I have spoken to a to a trader who 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 did say that their their goods were the goods were being held up for a few days and they weren't sure when they were going to come. So there seems to be many elements to this. I have heard similar similar um, feedback from um, from traders, but I also think that now we're in in between sales cycles. So the longer that crisis goes on, then we would enter the March sale, the the March contract sale, or the March March auctions. Where we will face these issues, these issues again, and um, and so the question now is if people are making those contingency plans for that next buying cycle. And but I think the other aspect of the story is the standing of El Rosa in the industry, and um, we know a few things that um, you know over the last decade it's been an interesting study to watch El Rosa because. They sort of shifted from a company that was not very um, forthcoming um, with their information to then um, becoming a public company. They're a third owned by the Russian government, a third by the Yakutia um, municipalities, and then they're on the open market in, in Moscow. And so once they IPO'd, once they went public, they became extremely transparent um, in terms of the information they were giving out. Um, so that's on the one side, and I always appreciated that because they give very good, just from the data that they publish, very good insights to what's happening in the market, and more so, I think, than any other company out there in terms of the data about their sales, about their operations. And then they also became very involved in industry issues. Um, you know, they're, they're standing within the industry uh, on bodies such as the World Diamond Council, um, their involvement with, uh, you know, with the RJC and with um, and uh, funding the Natural Diamond Council as well in terms of marketing, etc. It really raised their standing within the trade, and um, and then the next element is that they've been trying to build a brand and sort of enter the United the US market as a as a more of a branded jewelry company um, or. Providing jewelry within it, with two retailers in the United States, we know that they they have a a, a brand that um, 
uh, highlights uh, uh, the advantages of fluorescence. So a lot of the Russian goods um, have um, have uh, you know have fluorescence in them, and so this they saw as an opportunity, as a, a branding opportunity in the United States. And so the question now is is whether the events in in Russia Ukraine at the moment are going to affect its um, all those efforts. I mean, I think they inevitably will inevitably will affect them in some way. But the concern that people have in, have in the industry have had is is that you know, consumers will start boycotting Russian diamonds, which would obviously you know, represent a third of global rough production. Uh, and we know that big companies like Tiffany and Signet source from our from our Rosa. So the other the other question is, you know, we know that there's a limit to how much consumers actually care about or know and care about the country of origin of diamonds. We know there's been a lot of effort in the, on the sort of traceability side in this area in recent years with the GAA origin reports and De Beers origin program and all these things. Um, but we, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if people know when they're buying from Tiffany that, or wherever, that a third of diamonds come from Russia. What, what do you think, Avi? I think um, companies like Tiffany are, are disclosing their country of origin. But I agree, it's not, it's not, um, you know, if you go, if you walk into the average independent jeweler, um, that's not going to be displayed. And uh, I think it's likely to come more from, from the jewelers themselves. Um, that, you know, we, we're seeing, um, we're seeing pubs, you know, across the world, um, sort of, uh, you know, stopping to, stopping, stopping their sales of Russian vodka. Um, there was actually, a, you know, in in Jerusalem. It, I think it's in Jerusalem where uh, where there's a famous pub called Putin Pub, and it's been it's been a sort of a a landmark um, uh, location for the for the local sort of nightlife, and um, for for many years, and and they're changing their name now. So those efforts are coming from the from the vendors themselves. And I think the same would would apply in in the jewelry trade. That if you know, for example, we saw that Brilliant Earth has um, you know put out a tweet announcing that they're um, stopping their sales of Russian origin goods. And um, if that uh, you know, I think it would be it would ultimately lie with uh, lie with the companies to make that decision. And um, and then the question is, you know, what you know, is it is it Russia? There's so much Russian supply in the market. Does it apply to to just from the last week and onwards, or or before? Um, is it you know, is it a matter of uh, of new rough that's coming to the market, and then you've got to trace it along the the supply chain? I think there there are all these sort of um, questions that that people might have if such a if the company does make such a, a decision. Um, but uh, uh, at the moment, it's the, the, in terms of the legalities, there's no issue with buying and trading um, Russian origin goods at the moment. Right. So the other, the other two questions that the industry has at the moment, I think, is firstly, will so we've already said will will consumers sort of or retailers boycott Russian diamonds? Second thing is, will the US extend its sanctions and start Saying no, you actually can't deal with Alrosa or with the CEO Sergey Ivanov at all. I think that's very unlikely because that that would be pretty disastrous for the diamond industry. So, 
Well, I, th I think there, there is a lot of um, lobbying behind the scenes, um, and uh, particularly in the EU, where Antwerp would be particularly uh, affected by such a directive. And so at the moment, it seems that Diamonds is getting that exemption, and I think there's, uh, th that's partly because of the, the um, effective lobby that's going on behind the scenes and the implications for the rest of the, of the trade. Yeah, yeah. It's such a fluid, um, fluid situation and, um, and can change so quickly as well. And I think, it will in I think these, these issues will intensify as the conflict in the Ukraine continues. And at the moment, we don't really see an end to it. Um, but just to, to change the, the subject a bit <laughs> and um, to, uh, to maybe lighten the mood a little, um, the last podcast we were discussing how you haven't traveled in, in, in about two years since the, since the COVID situation. Um, and you went to the Dubai Diamond Conference, which took place, um, which took place uh, at, in, in the last week of February. It was a full week of events in, in Dubai. You must have come back exhausted. Yes, Avi, I did. I, I think I also got there exhausted, but uh, after a cancelled flight. It's the, it's the days of working after a night of travelling that I struggle with. I actually managed, managed to get through the conference on adrenaline and coffee, but um, to my surprise. Uh, but yeah, it was very packed. There was the conference, there was uh, the, J, the JGT Dubai trade show, um, which was the inaugural version of that, um, which was a partnership between two different trade organizations, uh, the trade trade show uh, organizers that seemed quite successful. Um, and then there was also a whole bunch of different events. There was a, there was a, a viewing of, uh, of the, the De Beers Cullen and Blue Diamond, uh, there was, uh, which is being sold at Sotheby's. Yeah, it was a very packed week. And then at the end, it was the the W the WFDB presidents meeting uh, presidents meeting um, as well. But I think the the flagship event was the was the conference, and there were some central issues that were discussed at the in in various panel panel meetings or, or panel discussions at um, at the conference. And um, the first was um, they asked the question, why did diamonds do so well during COVID? Um, and so that's really a, a it's a it's a market um, market related question um, that uh, was a discussion with uh, Bruce Cleaver, who's the CEO of of De Beers, and and as you mentioned, Sergey um, Ivanov, who was supposed to be there, but um, gave a video message. But what was the central what was the central messaging on that one? So on that on that issue, I think it was I think a lot of it was the issues that we've heard already, which is uh, less travel governance stimulus packages uh, and also the emotional connotation of, of diamonds so the fact that during difficult times and during lockdowns time spent you know much closer to the family than normal or at least to immediate family the people turn to diamonds as a way of showing their you know, making an emotional statement uh, so these are all th th these are all the issues that came up, and the question was really whether whether this would continue, and then whether some of the some of the challenges, some of the threats in the market at the moment, risk um, sort of putting an end to that, uh, particularly 
uh, high infl- high rates of inflation in the US. Mm. Which interestingly, uh, Bruce Cleaver, the CEO of De Beers, actually said that historically De Beers has actually done better during times of. Well, I should forget whether he said De Beers has done better or the diamond industry has done better um, during times of inflation for maybe not so easily explicable reasons. Um, but that didn't seem to be a major. Well, that's quite interesting. I wonder if it's because um, diamonds um, didn't experience that same price increase as um, as other staples. Um, one would think that during the cost of living goes up, that people would shy away from from luxury from luxury products. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's always the, kind of the broad concern is that when something bad happens, whether it's a trade war with China a few years ago or uh, or COVID, uh, the situation now with Russia, all these things, whether there's going to be a knock-on effect for, uh, for consumer sentiment. Mm, uh, yeah. And you know, a lot of this is very driven by how consumers are feeling. Right. And, but it also seems that the consumer landscape has, has changed um, in, a, in a very significant way over, over COVID. And, and then I would imagine that brought in that next discussion about um, changing demand and the the new consumer. Um, and so, Joshua, what were some of the um, points made about consumer trends? Okay, so one of the one of the issues that came up was um, there was a very interesting conversation between Beryl Raff, who was the who is the CEO of Hellsberg Diamonds, um, obviously a retailer in the U.S. jewelry retailer, and Stephen Lussier, who is the one of the, the top marketing executives, the top marketing executive at De Beers. Um, and uh, Beryl from, from Hellsberg on this panel said that uh, her, her lab-grown, lab-grown diamonds at her company, which the, they, they, Hellsberg launched a couple of years ago, saw dramatically stronger growth than natural diamonds. There's got a lot of people talking in the, in the audience and in the corridors, and the 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 message from that panel really was that we can't underestimate the strength of of, of lab grown and, and and from from the De Beers side it sounded like there was a what Stephen Lussier was saying was reflecting a slightly different approach from what De Beers were saying a few years ago. If you remember that they were when they launched Lightbox, their lab grown line a few years ago, it was very much that this is a, a low cost fashion jewelry product. And that there seemed to be more acknowledgement that consumers really are taking lab grown seriously and, and Buying it, you know, spending a lot of money on it, even buying it for engagement rings, and that's, that's still not the business line that, that it's a, a engagement project, engagement ring project, but product. But there seemed to be a there seemed to be a bit of a, a shift there, and this was what people were talking about in in, in the corridors afterwards. That's the lab grown story has evolved to such a a, a big such a large ex- extent. Um, I uh, I managed to participate a little bit in the um in the events in Dubai <clears throat> on the um later in the week as I mentioned there was the WFDB meeting and I was honored really to to give a presentation um virtually to the to the meeting about lab grown and while I was doing a bit of research for that presentation one of the striking aspects of the lab grown market to me was how the story has evolved and that um, attitudes have changed in such a very short time about across various aspects of the the lab grown markets, um, and I think it's across you know how we approach detection. That was the initial um, sort of rush into you know an industry response to lab grown. 
um, but also through, you know, through the four Ds, it's, you know, detection, disclosure, documentation, and, and differentiation. And I think now we're in that differentiation stage. But, uh, but what was interesting is, uh, is how the narrative has changed across, uh, across all, all aspects. And, and I think De Beers as well, I think they'll probably, you know, I don't think they would hide the fact that um, as the market has changed, they, they, their, um, their assessment of the market would have to evolve as well. And so I think we're seeing that on, on a few a few issues, for example, the the disclosure of post growth treatments. Um, you know that that was something that uh, that not everyone agreed with, and it seems that everyone is coming coming into agree agreement with with that. Um, but as I say, now it's mo moving into the the phase of differentiation, and um, it's definitely on the on the industry's radar. Um, but it doesn't. It feels like it's not as much of a threat as it used to be. Um, some, uh, you know, in terms of lab-grown um, versus natural, um, and I don't know if that was the tone of that um, of that discussion or not. Um, it sounds like it was somewhat competitive. Yeah, I think what we've seen is a lot of people in the trade trying to almost uh, sort of dance at both weddings and uh, sort of dip their toes into both of them. Um, in fact, I mean, having having just been to Dubai, you can see that they're Dubai is a is a place that is trying to sort of develop itself as a as a major diamond hub, and they are they're really seeing they're really pushing on both sides on 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 the natural side and the lab grown side. Well, they clearly see see then lab grown as an opportunity because I don't think they would have said um the same. Firstly, I don't think they would have said the same thing um a few years ago, and a few years ago we saw most of the diamond exchanges doing the opposite, really. Banning and um, the trade of, of of synthetics on their properties. Never mind the, the trading floor. And now there's this slowly, this um, gradual acceptance of um, of lab grown amongst exchanges. And I think that's coming from the retail market. That uh, most jewelers have embraced lab grown as a as a as an opportunity. Whether that's short term or a long term one remains to be seen. But um, but the the exchanges now are also on on that um, on that uh, that journey. And also, as you mentioned, with the also as you mentioned with the D's, that the detection has improved. Detection technology has greatly improved. So um, alongside that stronger demand, uh, yeah. Absolutely. Alongside that stronger demand, it's also easier to differentiate. Yeah, um, and it's also the technology to to defraud True. has also improved. Yes. Yes, you have to keep one step ahead. <laughs> well, so so the that drives a demand for for better detection um, equipment as well. Um, but Joshua, um, it sounds like pretty much uh, that we can in Dubai uh, touched on pretty much every aspect of the diamond industry. So um, it's uh, there's there's a lot going on, and certainly now with the war in between Russia and Ukraine and the economic consequences of that. There's a lot of moving parts in the in the industry. So, you know, we we've spent the last two or three years uh, worried about COVID and its implications, and we thought things would calm down in 2022. It's um, been anything but. It's been certainly an interesting time to be alive and in the industry. And um, and let's see where this takes us. Um, 
Joshua, it's, uh, I want to thank you for an interesting discussion. As always, it's been a pleasure um, chatting with you over the last half hour. And uh, let's see where this market takes us. Thanks for, for your insights. Thanks, Abby. It's been good fun. Great. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. And um, stay safe out there and have a great week. Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Ignite, a full-service innovation science and technology division within the De Beers Group, spearheading step change throughout the diamond industry. 